You turn with me to John's Gospel. We come to John 18, and we'll read from John 18, verse 24, to John 19, 16. It's about the cross. It's, uh, we've looked at it from various different aspects in recent weeks, and we jumped around chapter 18 a little bit and looked at Peter's denial last time. But in John 18, verse 28, I mean, Jesus has been brought out of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's been betrayed by Judas, and he's brought, first of all, to Annas. Remember Annas, the high priest? And then Peter, if you recall from last time we were together, denied our Lord three times. The rooster has crowed in fulfilment of the Lord's prediction, and now at verse 28... Let's pray before we read the Word of God. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of our wonderful Saviour, the Lord Jesus, whose these words speak about, in whose name I pray. Amen. So John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfil the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? They cry out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests of the officers Chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. It's a very sobering to read, isn't it? To be reminded of these words. There's a reference here to the Passover that does cause some difficulties because the Lord Jesus, you recall, and the disciples have already eaten the Passover. So what is John referring to then at the end of verse 28? It's caused some, some difficulties. Perhaps he means that these Jewish leaders, so intent have they been on the arrest of Jesus, so intent have they been to have Jesus killed, they have not as yet eaten the Passover, forgetting that the Passover was to be eaten at sundown the night before, when Jesus and the disciples had partaken. Perhaps that is what it means. Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, thinks that there are two different calendars at work here. The calendar with Jesus, with, with, that the Jesus and the disciples were operating on, and then a different calendar with which the Jewish temple leaders were operating with. Or as I personally think, the word Passover can have a wide-ranging meaning, and Passover could well refer not just to the Passover meal, but to the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Maybe that is what John means here. I don't know whether you ever saw, I think, I'm not even sure if I can remember when it came out. The, it won three Oscars, the film The Pianist. It was a very, very moving film about a Jewish pianist whose name was Vladislaw Spilsman, who was caught up in the overthrow of Warsaw, overrun by the Nazis. And he was a Polish pianist, a classical composer of Jewish descent. And Spielsman is widely known as the central figure of the 2002 film, The Pianist. And it was based on Spielsman's autobiographical account on how he survived the German occupation of Warsaw and the Holocaust. And he witnessed his mother and his father and his brother and his sister and 300,000 others being taken in on the trains to the death camps and gas chambers. And he, ex he escapes, he escapes, and there's a point in the film where he's hiding in a bombed-out, dishevelled home in the attic, trying to open a tin of fruit at the point of near starvation. And just as he's about to open the tin of fruit, 
The camera suddenly swivels and focuses on the presence of a, someone else. It's a Nazi German officer. And he asks him who he is. And he says, are you a Jew? And he says, yes. And he asks him, he, he asks him what, is, yeah, what do you do? And he says, I am, and then corrected himself and says, I was a pianist. And the German said, play me something. And Vladislaw Spielsman sat at this dusty piano and played Chopin, Chopin's Ballade Number no. 1 in G minor. I'm sure Philip could play that just as well. But in the most moving and sublime seven or eight minutes, in the horror and the inhumanity and the ugliness of that scene, there was something of exquisite beauty. And even if you don't know who Chopin is, I dare you to watch that scene and it not move you. And there is another Jew here in this passage. And he too is standing in the middle of man's inhumanity. Man's inhumanity. If you remember about the trial, what, you know, what a farce it was. The complete farcical nature of the trial. We looked at that in some detail and here is Jesus standing in the midst of sheer, unadulterated godlessness and hatred. The, the hatred of Satan, the hatred of man, directed at the Son of God, directed at Jesus. He's been on trial. He's on trial before the Roman authorities and he's on trial before the Roman governor of Judea and in particular Pontius Pilate. And John describes the scene for us. It's a scene that occurs in two acts, with a kind of intermission, a dark, sombre, grisly intermezzo. Two different acts follow through the same scenes, but in reverse order. See, in verses 28 to 32, Jesus is handed over to Pontius Pilate for execution. In verses 33 to 38, Jesus is cross-examined by Pilate. And in the voices, in the verses that end chapter 18, Jesus is defended by Pilate. In the first three verses of chapter 19, you have this intermission where Jesus is spat on and beaten and mocked by these cruel soldiers and in the same scenes in reverse order now play out in the second act of chapter 19. Jesus is defended by Pilate, he's cross-examined by Pilate, and he's handed over by Pilate for crucifixion. Two great acts that meet together in this cruel, sinister mocking of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus, I believe, intends for us to catch several strands of thought, of teaching from these verses. We know well these words. They should move us greatly, but we know them well. See, on the stage you have our Lord Jesus and Pontius Pilate. That's on the stage. In the background, you've got the Roman soldiers. You've got Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas? So the first thing I'd like you to notice from the, word, the verses we read is that Jesus is rejected by the world. I think that John wants us to see that Jesus 
was utterly rejected by this world. He was subjected to the world's rejection. That is what John has been telling us from the very beginning, right from the first prologue of his gospel, that he came into the world. The world did not recognise him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. The blindness of the world, the rejection of the Jews, meeting together in this passage, in some kind of climatic, if you like, scene of evil and conspiracy. And in this trial there, there is exposed the hypocrisy of the church, of the religious elite, and the weakness of the world. The hypocrisy of the church, using the word as those who claim to be the true religion. Do you notice how John records, how John underlines in the telling of the story and the drama? See, Pilate had to move from within the praetorium to the outside of the praetorium. And the Jewish leaders can never enter the praetorium because it is a Gentile palace. And the Jewish leaders are so obsessed with external ceremonial cleanliness, they wouldn't have entered, lest they be defiled. For the Passover ritual, they dared not enter the Praetorium. These men, who had murder on their hearts, their intent was to get rid of Jesus. That's in their hearts, and externally, they're concerned that they don't enter the Praetorium, the palace of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. It's hard to find a greater, greater illustration of hypocrisy than that. They're con really concerned about outward cleanliness and altogether unconcerned about the righteousness of God. They plead with the Roman authorities to set free a terrorist, a man who John described as a robber. But, but, but Barabbas had committed crimes that were worthy of capital punishment. And they would have him released rather than Jesus. That's how far the hatred of the world went. The hypocrisy of the church, the weakness of the world. Three times, Pilate says, I find no fault with this man. I find no basis for a charge in this man. It's lawyer speech, you understand. There's no basis for a charge. That is what Pilate is saying. Three times he says it. And weak, man-pleasing, vacillating Pilate has Jesus scourged anyway. And scourging inflicted terrible, terrible wounds. The Bible does not describe the crucifixion. It does not describe the scourge. But perhaps they may lie within some, um, some kind of masochistic tendency. But at the same time when John is writing this, his, needers, his readers would know what scourging was. His readers would know what crucifixion was. They saw it every day. We're uncertain about the manner in which the scourging was inflicted on our Lord. The Romans made scourging a punishment for numerous breaches of the law. And it was so gruesome, scourging, that the Roman citizen, except in really extreme circumstances, was exempt, whatever he had done, from scourging. And the Jewish manner of scourging was to lay a man 
down on the ground with his face to the dust and to beat his back. It's very unlikely that that's what happened to Jesus because the Roman scourging, he had been tied to a post and his bare back, the clothing removed and his back would have been bent in some way to tighten the skin. So at the very first infliction of the cords, the whips, with the bone and metal tied to them, would inflict the severest damage possible. Possibly 39 lashes, according to the Roman ritual. Sometimes the whips tore into the flesh so badly, a man would become almost skeletal in his appearance. And before we get to the cross, the crucifixion, this occurs here. Outside the palace of Pontius Pilate, something degrading, dehumanising, and it was the outpouring of the hatred of the world toward our King, the Lord Jesus. But what should pain us the most is that not that we're capable of doing this, but that we're capable of doing this to Jesus. First of all, Jesus is rejected by the world. Secondly, Jesus fulfills God's plan and purpose. Jesus is exposed to the rejection of the world. But John wants us to see a second strand of thought here. As these two acts play themselves out, he wants us to see very clearly that our Lord Jesus is fulfilling the purposes of God. He says in verse 5, and again in verse 14, there is an aspect in which what is happening to Jesus here is only fulfilling what God had intended for Jesus from the very start. John is interested in happenstance, words that Pilate utters, words that Caiaphas had uttered about one man dying for the people. And behind it, there lies an extraordinary truth. See, Pilate says in verse 5, Echo homo, behold the man. And then in verse 14, behold the king. It's extraordinary that Pilate should say more than once, behold the king. And John is saying very clearly to you and I, this ungodly man got it right. He was the king. He is the king of glory. Behold the man. This broken man, this bleeding man, this lacerated, torn man, this man for all seasons, this man for other men, the true man, the best man that ever was. And behold him as he bleeds, behold him as he undergoes such rigour and punishment and pain. Behold your king. But Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfil the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Why was it so important? Why was it important that Jesus should die by crucifixion? Why is that important? Many just cannot see why it is important that Jesus should die, but that he should die this way. But it had to be. It had to be. Because Jesus was hung on a cross. Because he will bear the curse. 
that is associated with, spoken in the book of Deuteronomy, that in order to take our place, in order to be the man for us, it had to be this way. All the gospel writers make note that the crown of thorns was pushed on Jesus' head. Why? What is the significance? What is the significance of the crown of thorns? We know it well, don't we? We know that Jesus had the crown of thorns. Where else in the Bible do you read about thorns? Genesis, at the fall. As a consequence of the fall, thorns and thistles would make man's life a curse. The expression of the curse of God in labour were thorns. And Jesus is the second man, the last Adam. And he's taking the thorns, he has them crowned on his head. As Pilate is saying, behold your king. And Jesus is taking the curse and he's nailing the curse to the cross. He's walking into the flames of hell for me. And in verse 39 to 40, Pilate unwittingly plays a part in this extraordinary custom. That at Passover, a man condemned to death, a criminal, a man guilty, would be set free. It's probably a kind of symbol of Passover. The lamb had been slain, the blood had been sprinkled and the lintels of the doorposts. The angel of death would pass over that house and death would not visit. That's what Passover signifies. And somehow it wasn't a biblical thing, but it was a custom that had grown. Surely you would have thought they would say, release Jesus. You would think, you would want to say, that is what you would have said. That's what I would have said, had I been in Jerusalem that day. And it still shocks, it still shocks, that when they say, Barabbas, the thief and murderer, instead of Jesus, Jesus or Barabbas? Which one? And they chose Barabbas. And remember, when Jesus had come into Jerusalem at Palm Sunday, the beginning of the week, the day when shepherds would bring those Passover lambs to the city, it would have been an extraordinary sight. Thousands, possibly tens of thousands of lambs. That please you, Andrew, wouldn't there tens of thousands of lambs in one place? But in every street, in every nook of cranny on Jerusalem would have been the Passover lamb. You, couldn't, you probably couldn't have moved for the lambs. And walking in their midst is the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus, who's come to lay down his life in order that the curse that is due to us would be removed. And then there is something else. Because John makes an allusion in verse 19 to a moment when Jesus is in this trial with Pontius Pilate, that he says nothing. Do you notice that? Verse 19, he says nothing. Jesus gave no answer. Why did Jesus give no answer? Do you, do you not think that John is saying to you and me, remember Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And not only do I think that John is recalling those words for us, he's saying in the self-consciousness of Jesus, he remembered those words. He is identifying himself as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, come into the world for the redemption of his own. So Jesus is fully exposed in these, in these passages to the rejection, the hatred of the world. But at the same time, Jesus fulfills every word of prophecy that God ever laid down with regard to him. And in the chaos and the tragedy of this event, God is mightily at work. The third thing I, John wants us to see is that Jesus is condemned, that Jesus is crucified. We've seen Jesus rejected. We've seen Jesus fulfilling the purposes of God. And at the last, we see him handed over for crucifixion. Jesus dies, Barabbas lives. It is often asked, isn't it? Have you heard it, that if you would have met Barabbas, maybe the next day, or the next week, or the next month, if you would have met Barabbas in the street in Jerusalem, and you went up to him and said, asked him the question, Barabbas, how come you're still alive? How come you're still alive? And there's only one answer to that question. That Jesus died in my place. He would have had to have said it. Because he literally did. Now he, as far as we know, wasn't in the good of that. But the only answer he could have given, how come Barabbas, you're still alive? Is Jesus died in my place. It's like an acted out parable, is it not? John is saying to us, do you, do you see the gospel here? This is the gospel. This is what it's all about. It does not get better than this. Three times in John, five times in Luke, three times the verdict is passed. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. You can hear it tolling like a bell. How come was he condemned? Three times. Not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. How come he was condemned? What are the charges? We've seen them. 32, a supposed treason against Caesar. In verse 7 of chapter 19, blasphemy that he made himself God. Two charges, treason and blasphemy. And what is the significance? It is that these are precisely the charges that are levelled by God against you and me. Treason because we have refused to have him as king. And blasphemy because we have made ourselves to be God. In a way, what is happening is what Martin Luther said, isn't it, the great exchange? The accusations levelled against us are levelled against Christ. He who was not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, is being reckoned guilty for me. Guilty for me. Guilty for me. Behold your king. Pilate said, behold him. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? But what is your instinct now, this 
very moment now. This very moment now, because it says something about your heart. Is it your instinct on hearing these words to sing like we did, crowning with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne? Or is it your instinct to say, and I pray this would never be the case, away with him and crucify him? In the middle of this extraordinary discourse, Pilate says the most extraordinary thing. What is truth? He may well have been the ultimate postmodernist. What is truth? And Jesus saying, I am truth. He is the one. My friend, he's the one who makes sense of everything. That's why I, 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 I keep mentioning it, but in here, it makes sense. It makes sense because of what Jesus has done. We can be real in here. Brothers and sisters united in him. The one who makes sense of everything. The one who integrates the mess and of what we hear in Ecclesiastes. What is life under the sun? What is life under the sun for without Christ? For without Jesus, like, it's clear. It's vanity, meaningless and empty. You live and then you die. What could be more depressing than that? And the only thing that makes sense of anything at all is Jesus. So what is your instinct on hearing these words? Does it, does it, in, in, does it excite you to sing, crowning with many crowns? Because on it hangs our eternal destiny. Our eternal destiny hangs on the instinct to sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. When I survey the wondrous cross on which my Lord of glory died. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal, yes, eternal good. Amen.